0: Welcome to this podcast from the May 12th, 2009 meeting of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. This podcast is from the first session relating to sports participation and sports sponsorship in Division I, College Sports. Knight Commission co-chairman R. Gerald Turner, president of Southern Methodist University, provides the introduction of the presenters for this first session. The podcast runs approximately one hour, For more information on the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, visit www.knightcommission.org.
1: And this particular session uh, will be on Division I athletic programs, the financial health of these programs, and uh, with particular focus on sports participation, the number of sports supported by Division I uh, universities, uh, how participation and sponsorship has changed over time, Uh, how financial pressures have contributed to the changes that will be discussed, and then what projections are uh, for the futures. Uh, Certainly, the headlines uh, that have to do with the financial pressures that all of us are feeling, as well as their implications for our athletic programs, uh, are getting to be more visible all the time. And so we're delighted to have uh, two individuals with us to make presentations and then lead this discussion. Uh, The first is John Cheslock. And uh, John is associate professor in the Center of Higher Education at the University of Arizona. Uh, He's a labor economist, graduate of Cornell. And his research areas focus on uh, the economics of higher education with a special interest in tuition and financial aid policy, faculty labor practices, and uh, the role of Title IX in intercollegiate athletics. And so he's published a number of books in these areas also. So we're very pleased to have you with us, John. Tim Curley is currently serving as his 16th year of athletic dire- as athletics director at Penn State, his alma mater. He also oversees the uh, expansive intramural club sport programs on the University Park campus, as well as the general recreational activities on campus. He's charged with the responsibility of athletic and recreational programs at Penn State's Commonwealth campuses. And in addition to running one of the most successful athletic departments in the country, um, he also has to run or gets the opportunity to run the recreational sports programs. Uh, But he's a member of the NCAA Committee on on Academic Performance and on the Board of Directors of the Honda Collegiate Women's uh, Sports Awards program. So we're very pleased to have both John and Tim with us. And uh, John will present his research findings on this subject, and then Tim will follow him. Uh, we'll have discussion at about 11, and break this up at about 10 after 11, or uh, 11, 15, something in that area. Uh, those of you that are not able to see the slides that John's going to be presenting, then there are copies of these slides that can be uh, handed out to anyone who's interested. So. Thank you both for being with us. And uh, John, if you'll get us started, and
2: then Tim follow up, then we'll be underway. Well, thank you, and I, th- I would like to thank the Knight Commission for giving me the opportunity to speak. My talk today is um, entitled Maintaining Broad-Based Athletic Programs in an Era of Rapid Expenditure Growth. And really, that, t- that title reflects the third part of really a three-part talk. The first two parts, what I want to do is just provide a quick overview of the research that exists on how sports participation and sports sponsorship has changed over time, and also to give a quick overview in terms of how athletic expenditures have changed over time. In the third part, I'm going to be presenting new evidence on which colleges and universities will offer broad-based athletic programs and sponsor Olympic sports. Now, before I present an overview of the research on intercollegiate athletics, I think it's helpful to just give a little bit of perspective about research on intercollegiate athletics and I think one of the best ways to provide that perspective is to walk through a little example with all of you. Let's say that you were thinking that you wanted to know something about how men's athletic participation has changed in the N.C.A. And you thought, well, but I want to learn more about this and why don't I turn to some federal reports on this, on this subject because maybe that, that would help me out in, in trying to figure out how men's athletic participation has changed. And you do some research and you find out there has been four federal reports that provide data on how men's athletic participation has changed, and you say, well, let's start with the first one. On um, The GAO in 1999 did that, and you look at that one, and you see that men's athletic participation fell by 12 percent, and you say, well, throughout the NCAA, men's athletic participation is falling quite a bit. Well, let me just read one more just to make sure that this is right. You read the next one, you say, well, actually, men's athletic participation increased by 5 percent according to GAO 2001. At this point, you're scratching your head trying to make sense of this. And you say, well, let me just read one more. So you look at the Secretary of Education's Commissioning on Opportunity Athletics report, and you see that now men's athletic participation decreased by 8 percent. You look at one more, it turns out it increased by 9 percent. And each of these look at fairly, fairly similar, fairly similar time periods. So you can't say these are different time periods. And at this point, you're throwing down these reports and just saying, I don't, I'm, I don't even need to know, I guess, how men's athletic participation has changed because this is too confusing. Um, and. There's two points that I want to bring from this. First, a very specific point. The very specific point is that men's athletic participation actually did increase. And if anyone wants a number of sleep-inducing details, I can explain the data and methodological challenges that allowed for these varying different numbers. But the more general point that I want to just bring out is that our understanding of a lot about intercollegiate athletics is really at a, a very early stage. Some of the most basic questions about how many men athletic participants there used to be, how many there are now, only in the last few years have we really provided a very clear answer on this most basic question. And there's a number of more complex questions that we don't have much knowledge at at all. And so what I want to do just quickly is just go over some of the basic findings that we do have this knowledge about. So in terms of how sports participation has changed, now the best data available, uh, the best analysis available is for the 95 to 2004 period, some work that I have done. And real quickly, for women, there was steady growth across all NCA divisions and subdivisions. And so the gap that exists in terms of men's participation and women's participation has declined some over time. For men, there's a much more complicated story. In Divisions 2 and 3, you do see some substantial growth, but you see slight declines in Division 1. And you really need to break out Division 1 even further. Uh, In Divisions 1AAA and 1AA, you see really no change in participation levels. But in 1A you see declines and if you break out 1A even further into those schools in BCS conferences versus those who are not, you see that most of the declines occurred in the schools not in the BCS conferences and really only slight declines in the schools in the BCS conferences. And and these these figures make sense somewhat in the sense that in Division 2 and 3 you can think of athletics sometimes being used as a recruiting tool in a way to perhaps generate more tuition revenue. While well, it's a hard case to make, especially in 1A, that athletics is uh, used as a tool to improve the institutional finances of the institution. If you turn from participation to sponsorship, participation being how many athletes there are versus sponsorship being how many teams there are, you uh, get a fairly similar story. Uh, again you, and this is changes from 1988 to 2006, and so plus 700 in Division I for women means on net there's 700 teams added, 700 teams more were added than were eliminated. And you see again steady growth for women and a differential story for men depending on which division that you're talking about. And overall roster sizes have been increasing in a lot of areas so participation is changing due to sponsorship and due to changing roster sizes. Finally one thing I always like to emphasize, if you take these numbers and you try to then say oh well then I know how an individual sport has changed, you will often Uh, make some uh, incorrect statements. There are very different trends across sports, and one of the best ways to illustrate this is comparing gymnastics and lacrosse. Again, this is 1988 to 2006, and if you look at gymnastics, you see there has been declines for every division for both genders, while for lacrosse there has been no declines and growth in every area except for division one for men. So um, very different trends by sport. Now, that's the first part of my talk. The second part, what I want to talk about is athletic expenditures, and something about athletic expenditures is that we know even less about expenditures than participation. And Athletic expenditure data, and especially revenue data as well, is very hard to work with and contains a lot of errors, both systematic and unsystematic. And our knowledge is is so limited in that it's only the last few years that we even had Sound estimates of just how athletic expenditures have changed year to year. Most of our previous estimates were based not on apples to apples comparisons across years. We had the same set of colleges and universities in different years. And what I report are three studies put out in the last few years. My, uh, my report in 2008 saw a 7% compound annual growth rate in Division I athletic expenditures between 95 and 96. And two other reports found a, pretty much close to a 7% growth rate as well. Let me just uh, uh, talk about some details real quick that will just help reduce any confusion. There's multiple ways to talk about how expenditures have grown over time. You cannot adjust for inflation, you can, uh, or you can adjust for inflation aggressively using something called the Higher Education Price Index, less aggressively using something called the Consumer Price Index. Those figures are for the Higher Education Price Index, about a 7 percent growth rate annually. If you use the Consumer Price Index, you're talking about an 8 to 8.5 percent. If you don't adjust for inflation, you're talking about an 11 percent growth rate. These figures are presented sometimes in different formats. It can lead to confusion. Whether you're talking about 11 percent growth rate annually, not adjusting for inflation, or a 7 percent growth rate after using the higher education price index, the word commonly used uh, to describe such growth rates is unsustainable. It's hard to sustain athletic programs where expenditures increase that much year to year. It's hard to make the budgets uh, uh, hard to make the budgets work. Now, if we just think about what could be the benefits of some level of expenditure restraint. If you think about a 7% growth rate, what happens if we st- decrease it to a 5% growth rate? And most people would consider a 5% growth rate after aggressively controlling for inflation again. Which still A lot of people consider that real, still quite high. So if I just took the median athletic program in Division I in terms of expenditures for fiscal year 2006, and then I project out their 2006 budget based on a 7% growth rate versus a 5% growth rate you see that expenditures in 2007 would be about 715000 less in 1A and close to 200000 less in 1AA or 1AAA. So even if you could moderately slow down growth, you would be freeing up a fair amount of expenditures. And if you were able to do so in a way where it's throughout the NCAA as a whole, so that perhaps at individual institutions wasn't doing it unilaterally and harming their, institu- their athletic revenues, then you could see the opportunity for more sports participation and sponsorship activities. Now again, the athletic expenditure data is is not perfect, but those are the best estimates we have to date. Now in terms of freeing up money to provide more participation in sponsorship activities, let's sort of talk about those. And what I want to do in this last part is sort of touch upon, there's some debate there's been in terms of uh, Olympic sports, uh, sports like fencing and gymnastics that are less commonly offered, and you hear a lot of conversation about concerns that these sports won't be offered in the future. The NCA and the USOC had a joint task force to investigate this issue a few years back. And so I'm going to try to connect some of the things I was talking about there to this issue of things I talked about earlier, connect those to this issue of uh, the sponsorship of Olympic sports. And you can think of it, first I'm going to start with just asking the question of who would we expect to offer Olympic sports? And I would think in, in sort of two cases, the first is an is a athletic program that's very broad based in terms of sponsoring a large number of programs. Um, the second would be one that doesn't offer a large number of programs, um, but it just offers a smaller amount, but has atypical sports offerings. For example, Cleveland State University sponsors men's and women's fencing, but doesn't sponsor cross country and track and field, which are commonly offered. Um, On the the first category, the broad base, you could sponsor 25-30 sports, you can offer the commonly offered sports as well as the less commonly offered ones. And who would be able to do that? Who would be able to have such a broad-based athletic program? I sort of thought about three cases. The first two are cases where uh, an athletic program has access to a lot of revenue. The first case being ones that is funded by (coughs) substantial subsidies provided by uh, the university, where they're at, or donors, Uh, perhaps the most prominent case of that would probably be Stanford. Uh, the second would be funded by profits generated from revenue generating sports. Uh, perhaps the one used most commonly for that example is Ohio State. Uh, the third one is where you may not have more money than other athletic programs, but you, maintain, you have more effective cost control. And so you're able to offer more programs through that route. And the most classic example for that is probably the Ivy Leagues, in the sense that they don't offer athletic financial aid, and so they're able to have much lower costs per sport than some other programs. So, that's sort of a, a conceptual framework for thinking about these things. But let's, let's get into some data on sports sponsorship. Now, I show you there for 2004 or 5 the average number of sports sponsored. So, in Division 1, for, um, they average 19 sports for their men's and women's programs. On uh, Division 3, <coughs> is about 18. Division 2 is 14. Two things that will be helpful in thinking about this. First of all, I'm using 2004 or 5 data. First, because I already had those data up and running, it was easy to run this additional analysis. But the other thing you're gonna see is that it's helpful to look at this because we're gonna see some of the most broad-based programs in 2004-05 and we now know, since it's four to five years later, which one of those abandoned a broad-based approach. So that'll, that's gonna produce some insights. The second thing that I'm gonna sort of focus on in terms of defining a broad-based program is offering at least 25 sports. One could argue 20 to 25 is a fairly broad-based program as well. But for just the ease of presentation, I'm just going to focus on the most extremely broad-based above 25. But a lot of the insights that I'm going to share today would also occur if I focused on 20 to 25. The analysis would just be a bit more messy. So as you see, if you if you define it, the extremely broad-based is above 25. There's not many programs in division two that offer that, <coughs> even though there are some broad-based programs in the 20 to 25 range. A real quick focus on division three. Most of the extremely broad-based programs are in two conferences. The uh, New England Small College Athletic Conference, every uh, athletic program in, in that conference has at least 27 teams. The Centennial Conference has an average of 23. And these uh, would be in that first category, the four categories I presented earlier. They're very rich liberal arts colleges. Uh, you can think about Williams, Ann Haverford, um, Swarthmore. Those are the, the uh, colleges that are in those two conferences. No other uh, institution in Division III sponsors more than 26 sports, with the exception of St. Lawrence and MIT. And some of you may know MIT has been in the news because they've reduced their sports sponsorship from 41 to 33 recently. They decided that the, ex- the extremely broad-based uh, program that they had, they could no longer sustain it. I'm not sure if the 44 and 0405 was, they had already cut three or just a data error for that year, but they are the, perhaps the most atypical. Uh, uh, most extreme finding, the outlier here, and there's someone who found they could no longer sustain that broad-based program. Now let's look at Division One and break down sports sponsorship into subdivisions. Uh, you can see I broke down uh, 1A, or now the um, football bowl subdivision is now called, uh, into those in BCF conferences and those in non-BCS conferences. The first thing that you see is. Uh, both in the non-BCS 1A schools and the one a schools, the, no one has extremely broad-based programs above 25. That's very rare. But there are some relatively broad-based programs there. So I'm going to just focus on 1AA and the BCS. If you focus on 1AA, you see that the largest uh, programs uh, throughout higher education, the Ivy League, an average of 35 sports uh, per athletic program, which uh, is much higher than any other conference, And again, the Ivy League is very, very, very wealthy institutions, you could probably add a few more varies there. And they are also uh, schools that have relatively low cost per team through not using financial aid. The Patriot League, uh, schools like Lehigh, Lafayette, Bucknell, they uh, are still wealthy, but less wealthy than the Ivy League, and they have experimented with restraining financial aid over time, and you see they have a range of 25 to 27. No other program sponsors more than 24 sports, except for three, Georgetown, James Madison, and Sacred Heart. Georgetown's is very atypical, they're in the Big East, a BCS conference for a lot of sports, so they're not a typical 1A program. So we only have two outliers, James Madison and Sacred Heart, and James Madison, as some of you know, uh, abandoned a broad-based program, they went from 28 sports to 18, so they essentially went as one of the major outliers, and now they have pretty much the average level of 1AA sports, they cut 10 sports a few years ago. Now moving into the BCS uh, institutions, you see, first of all, I show these figures by sport and you can see that the Big Ten is the clear leader in terms of sports sponsorship with the SEC and Big 12 uh, near at the bottom and the other three in between. I think there's more insights when we look at the 11 uh, m- uh, most broad-based programs in uh, 2004-05 and just 11 there who are above 26 and several things that, uh, clearly jump out. You have schools like Stanford, Notre Dame, and Duke who are extremely wealthy private institutions, top 15 endowments. Boston College is less wealthy, but they're still a fairly wealthy private institution. Then you have a number of public institutions, and you're uh, talking about publics who, some of them have large endowments, and some of them who charge fairly high tuition for public, so they they may be more wealthy as an institution. And then others, like Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan, North (coughs) Carolina, who have very strong followings for their athletic programs and can generate a fair amount of athletic revenue. Now the clear outlier here is Rutgers, in the sense that Rutgers is the least wealthy of those 11 institutions. I think their endowment's around 120 or 130, and also they don't generate a especially large amount of athletic revenue. And they are a school that uh, reduced their sports from 29 to 23. At the same time, they did uh, increase investment a little bit in uh, men's football and women's basketball, and perhaps other sports as well. Uh, but it makes sense that uh, the only way they could uh, sort of be up there with the most broad based programs is through cost control, they don't have the revenues to do that. And why I found the outliers interesting, These, this is sort of a new analysis I ran before this and I just sort of tried to look at the data patterns and it's not a very thorough analysis of this, not like the earlier re- results that have been done over a number of years, this is new new material. And the thing that really jumped out at me is every time I looked at a list, the outlier, the one that you really were, were surprised that they had such a high number of sports there given the amount of revenues they had access to were the ones who have abandoned the broad-based philosophy. And so one could interpret these findings as saying that, you know, when you have this really steady growth over time, uh, 7% are over a year in expenditures, it's going to be hard to maintain a broad-based program. And the first ones you expect to go are the ones who don't have this natural source of revenue they can turn to. And you would expect if you did analysis between the 20 to 25 range, you'd be seeing some of the same things there as well, and I want to document that more thoroughly in the future. And so the question is, how many of these these athletic programs that don't have large amounts of revenue continue to offer broad-based programs? And also the ones who have access to a large amount of athletic revenues, will they be able to continue to do that in the future? Those are sort of open questions. Real quickly, to go back to the, the topic of Olympic sports, and just sort of talk about the role that broad-based programs play in that debate. Uh, if you think about the 321 Division I programs that exist, let's say you took the, just the, the 10% the, of those who ought, if you just looked at those who sponsor at least 25 sports, you'd be looking at just 10 percent of those 320, just about 32 of those 320. While, are only te- while these 32 approximately um, athletic programs are only 10 percent of Division I, they sponsor 53 percent of men's gymnastics and 72 percent of women's fencing. And so they really play a vital role in, in, uh, in ensuring that these Olympic sports are offered. And when these programs uh, move away from a broad-based approach, these rarely sponsored Olympic sports are usually the first to be eliminated. I've I've talked about three cases here, there's more than just these three cases, but in terms of Rutgers, uh, when they dropped their six sports, fencing and men's crew were involved, James Madison, uh, fencing, gymnastics, wrestling, and archery, MIT, gymnastics, wrestling, pistol, ice hockey, and also alpine skiing, I forgot to put up there. So these are uh, clearly, when they decided to move away from a broad-based philosophy, it wasn't the most commonly offered sports that were eliminated first, it was these more rarely sponsored Olympic sports. And just to set the stage to the other presenters who I'm very looking forward to hearing from, uh, you know, I, I'm basically posing a question somewhat, is can current broad-based athletic programs continue to sponsor a large number of sports in the future if rapid expenditure growth continues? Can, if we're going to have 7% growth rate a year, can, can you really sustain an athletic program? and continue in terms of having a large number of sports. And the second question, which is how do we restrain expenditures? I talked about, there's numerous benefits to expenditure restraint. I talked about some of those in terms of participation opportunities, and so I pose that question. And to be honest, that's a much harder question than any question that I was given today to answer, and so I'm very appreciative of the Knight Commission for letting me do the easy work, and I look forward to uh, the other presenters doing the hard work. So thank you very much all right thank you John
1: and uh, why don't we go Tim into your presentation then we'll open it up for questions and comments
3: great good morning everyone and uh, let me add my uh, thank you for uh, allowing me to be before you today and I appreciate hearing John's comments Uh, for those of you that don't know John is uh, going to be joining the faculty at Penn State in about three months so we uh, have a transfer coming here right now and uh, we're looking forward to having him in the Penn State family Uh, I uh, want to thank all of you for this opportunity uh, to talk about sports sponsorship and sports uh, participation and but before I do that I just want to take a few moments to offer my perspective of how I see the condition of Division 1 college sports right now Um, I can't address Division 2 or 3 but I, I feel my comments probably reflect those programs as well this is my 35th year as a Penn State student-athlete and an administrator in my 16th year as the athletic director at Penn State and I feel I've seen a lot during these last 35 years. Uh, as I reflect on the current condition of intercollegiate athletics, I strongly believe that college athletics is the healthiest that I've seen it and experienced to date. I think there are many positive things that have happened for intercollegiate athletics. We certainly have our challenges, but uh, I want to uh, make sure that I stress that uh, I do think uh, this is some of the best days that we've had in college athletics. While college athletics has endured its share of criticism, skeptics, and challenges, I hope all of us would take a few moments to celebrate the positive values intercollegiate athletics brings to the missions of our respective colleges and universities. Sometimes we are so busy addressing the challenges of the day that we forget to stop, reflect, and to celebrate on our achievements. The NCA membership has responded to the rapidly changing and unpredictable landscape in a very positive and responsible way. As I look back, it is clear that the membership does have the ability to govern itself and make the necessary adjustments to properly manage and deliver the important programs on our campuses. Let me share some of the highlights from the past 10 to 15 years that I believe confirms much progress has been made to date ncaa governance was restructured and presidential control serves as the cornerstone of the enterprise ncaa academic standards and accountability have been completely revamped with the implementation of the academic performance program apr gsr initial and continuing eligibility have the daily focus of coaches support personnel administrators and presidents The newly created NCA Amateurism Clearinghouse has improved the integration of international student athletes into our system of intercollegiate sport. NCA drug testing has not only leveled the playing field but has deterred our student athletes from the temptations facing all of our student athletes on our respective campuses. NCA championships have never been better. The competition, the quality of competition has never been better. NCA certification is alive and well and is serving its intended purposes. NCA compliance programs are stronger than ever and are are an effective way of controlling our competitive environments. The comprehensive NCA catastrophic insurance program provided to all student athletes that participate under the NCA umbrella have given much protection and support to those in the greatest of need. Sportsmanship to me is at an all-time high among athletes and coaches. Health care for our student athletes has improved dramatically and has never been better. Reporting lines for our academic support units has changed, and oversight is being provided, the same as other academic support services for the general student body. NCA rules and policies have become flexible, and common sense is now applied to special circumstances. Title IX has resulted in many positive changes in the delivery of our sports programs and the benefits for all participants. Improvements to our athletic facilities for practice and competition has dramatically increased. Learning environments for our student athletes and coaches. The visibility of our programs is at an all-time high and has never been stronger. TV, internet, new media continue to evolve to connect our many constituencies to in real time. Our ability to tell our story about the positive aspects of our student athletes and universities and to brand our product has never been better. Our revenue sports are healthy, attendance is up, television exposure is comprehensive, and TV ratings remain strong. Division 1A Association salary survey and NCA dashboard indicators uh, tools have positioned key uh, decision makers with informed and accurate information. Student athlete input and communication through the respective student-athlete advisory boards has given participants an important voice and a channel to provide important and effective input. NCA financial aid policies have responded to the changing needs of our student-athletes. NCA student-athlete welfare is a key focus on a daily basis in the delivery of our programs. I could go on and on, but I think you get the picture. In my opinion, college athletics is strong, healthy, and has responded to the many challenges and will continue to do so in the years ahead. However, major challenges confront us and are stressing the enterprise as we now see it. One such challenge facing the membership is the topic of sports sponsorship and participation. While I have not studied the data about sponsorship and participation as closely as John has presented to you this morning, I believe the economic realities and conditions facing athletics will have a major impact on sponsorship and participation in the years ahead. I remain concerned that if adjustments are not made, we will see a reduction of both men and women's programs in the next three to five years. I believe Olympic men's sports will see the biggest reductions, and many programs that will be offered by colleges and universities in the Olympic category will uh, return to club sports status or even intramural programs. At Penn State, as mentioned earlier, I oversee the varsity programs, the club sport program, intramurals, fitness, our commonwealth campus, two-year athletic programs. Just to give you a profile of what uh, our campus looks like, we sponsor 29 varsity sports. We have 15 men, 14 women. We have about 800 total student athletes who participate in what we call our varsity athletic program. Our club sport program, we have an amazing 73 different club sport programs that services over 3,500 student participants annually. Our intramural program sees over 20,000 students uh, in its very comprehensive program on an annual basis. Our fitness programs, we have 25,000 students that purchase their annual fitness fees uh, to participate in our fitness programs from strength training to the various fitness programs uh, offered by our staff. Our campus athletic program, our two-year athletic program, has about 3,000 student-athletes participating in its program as well. Our general uh, recreation program remains extremely strong. The bottom line is, our student body values recreational and varsity sport competitive activity. They want to participate and it is our responsibility to respond to the needs and the interests of our students that we serve. Financial pressures is the main challenge to sports sponsorship and participation. Over the past five years, as John has pointed out, growing expenditures have outpaced our revenue sources and we can no longer sustain a financial model under such guidelines. Revenues, while the past decades have found new revenue streams, new television contracts, 12th football game, Outsourcing of our multimedia rights, private giving increases, ticket prices, donation programs, central and state support. The bottom line is, these revenue streams cannot continue at the rate that they have in the past. Our expenses, we continue to be challenged with our expenses, some that are uncontrollable, and I would say that most of our expenses at this point uh, fit into that category. Our utilities on our campuses are escalating at an extremely high rate. Since 9-11, our game day security measures have just escalated to a point where each year they just continue to outpace our ability to fund such important safety measures. Our travel expenses, all of us have faced our increased travel concerns. Uh, While the gas and oil uh, rates have gone down, travel expenses have not BAG surcharges have increased and certainly have hit intercollegiate athletic teams. Medical insurance costs have risen as well as medical malpractice insurance. Escalating salaries that uh, we are uh, in a competitive battle right now with professional leagues and our, our revenue sports. Escalating salaries continue to be a real challenge and a stress on the system. Our facility improvements... Uh, are no different than our academic buildings on campus. All of us have been faced with trying to replace uh, buildings that were built right after World War II, and our facilities have faced many challenges, and many of us have responded to those, but our facilities continue to stress our our ability to fund uh, our programs. New technologies uh, certainly have uh, evolved and have really stressed the system as well as we continue to try to adapt to the, to the new uh, technologies that are available to us through the Internet and other means. I have, as I said earlier, I have not had a chance to study in depth, but my uh, read is from being in the trenches is that uh, these next three to five years, uh, I think, are going to be challenging times for sports participation and, and sponsorship. Um, I, I believe that uh, as we look forward it's going to be very difficult for us to come up with new revenue streams to offset our escalating expenses uh i will look forward to the presentation the next presentation that may offer some uh solutions as to how we might be able to contain our our uh, restrain our expenditures and how we might be able to move forward Um, as john has done uh, suggesting some questions to this group uh, I think uh, really what's before us is uh, just how are we going to deliver sport programming in the future. Uh, and I think that's a real question. How many varsity programs is realistic? Uh, what is the balance of those programs? Uh, how should they properly be funded? We have had models in Division I where for many years we were uh, so focused on self, uh, self-supporting programs that uh, general subsidies were, were criticized to where I think we're moving now where general subsidies are, are certainly uh, no longer criticized but they're also being very uh, strained because of the institutional challenges that uh, states are putting on many schools and, and the increased tuition rates. And, and I think that uh, those will certainly uh, challenge all of this. On the expenditure side, Rising tuition, tuition, I think, is another one that is really impacting Division I for scholarship programs. Uh, All of us that uh, have large, broad-based programs, uh, if you have uh, a large tuition increase before we even start the next academic year, uh, we've got to come up with that tuition increase and uh, housing and room and board increases as well. So I think we have uh, many challenges ahead, and I I look forward to the questions that you might have.
1: Okay, thank you Um, you just to start those comments you uh, as you were getting into the second part of your comments there Tim you said if adjustments are not made then certain things would happen and uh, you've certainly outlined a number of of the kinds of things that uh, could happen what are the do you have any suggestions on what those adjustments when you wrote that? What uh, did you have in mind when you said if, if adjustments are not made?
3: Well, I think at this point everything should be on the table. We need to look at uh, obviously both sides with the revenue and expenditures. Uh, I, I believe that within the NCA there's there's certainly areas that we, we need to look at in terms of uh, uh, competition that we have with our championships and our, our uh, qualifications to uh, uh, get access to those championships. I think our travel cost, the participation, playing in practice seasons is an area that needs to be looked at. Personnel is always uh, one of the highest uh, cost factors that we have. I think personnel is certainly an area uh, that need to, needs to be looked at. Um, the number of competitions we have. We have a traditional sports season and a non-traditional sports season. I think uh, we need to look at uh, what exactly we're we doing in the non-traditional sports seasons and how Uh, much competition we provide in that opportunity and just uh, right now we are in a a mode right now where we're 24 7 365 with sports and uh, I think at some point we need to look uh, to see if there might be a way to to give some relief to that Uh, certainly I don't have the answers but I think those are some of the areas that need to be revisited
1: okay questions comments from uh, Commission members to either one of these the expense issue in general okay excuse me Anita
4: thank you very much and thanks for those fast-moving reports Um, sponsorship when you say sponsorship that means that it's not a part of the offerings of the college and that it's paid for outside of the the tuition and fees that the student would provide does that also include the club sports which are outside Um, because for example in the case of Rutgers um, what happened there I know about it because of them rowing, that when they cut the men's rowing program, they lined up a bunch of alumni to pay for the cost of it and actually had committed millions of bucks to this, supposedly, Um, and were prepared to go forward. But the college said, nope, we made the decision. And uh, so there's a women's varsity program, which there hadn't been for years. There had men's varsity and the women were club, and then it switched so that the men were club but not varsity. But they were both sponsored by the university, so I'm confused about what sponsor
3: means. Well, when I uh, address sponsorship, uh, I'm really a, uh, addressing NCA sponsorship. that makes it an official NCA sport. Uh, the funding models among our membership varies, and there's great diversity uh, among how we're funding our programs. Uh, some programs, such as Penn State, we, we try very hard to be a self-supporting unit of the university where we don't get any money from the state or from the university. Uh, we don't use any tuition money to run our varsity athletic program. There are very few programs that are in that category. And even the ones that are in that category, if somebody drilled down uh, to see exactly uh, what all is covered, uh, there, there would uh, I would suspect there are very, very few that are completely self-supporting. Um, I think each institution is going to have to decide, you know, obviously uh, how many sport programs that they can sponsor NCAA varsity sport-wise, and then how many of those are going to convert back to uh, a club sport status. Both the intramurals and club sports, uh, you receive some institutional support. We are seeing a growing increase in the uh, participation uh, fees that students must pay to participate in those activities. So I think in addition to the rising tuition costs and the room and board costs, another area that's felt by our student body is just in these uh, extracurricular activities that uh, in our case would be club sports and intramurals where they're having to foot a lot of the bill to participate in those activities. Uh, they do fundraisers, they, they have it come out of their back pocket, Uh, and then the university provides some support. But even in that area, I think you're going to continue to see uh, even uh, the club sport programs. As much as the student body wants to be active and involved, at some point uh, there's only so many discretionary dollars that can go towards these types of activities. So I think you'll see sponsorship at the club and intramural level perhaps level off as well, and I don't think that would be good for our institutions
2: follow-up, just real quickly on that, is my numbers did not include, uh, they were just, uh, they did not include club sports, by any means, and we don't actually, I think, have any good estimates of how club sports are changing, and I don't know if we have a lot of estimates on how much the student uh, athlete experience changes, whether it's a varsity sport or a club sport, and I think Tim's right in that. I think club sports have an easier time uh, generating support for student fees, but then, given the rising level of tuitions, uh, can can students handle Mm -hmm. more fees?
1: Andrea, go ahead. Newman. Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, you mentioned among your other increased costs the arms race and coaches' salaries, and I I wondered if um, um, you th- you had any thoughts specifically on that subject, on whether or not you th- you thought it was prudent for that to continue for institutions to participate in it, whether or not you thought there's possibly more than one coach for a job, possibly a way to slow down that 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 growth, how you would um, recommend looking at that, and um, um, also if you could take as part of that one of the excuses you get or one of the reasons you get from institutions (coughs) is that, well, the base salary is only X. And the rest of the salary is coming from the media contract, and you know I look at that and I say, well, that's money that would have gone to the athletic department, would have gone to the institution, and so there really isn't a distinction there. But I think schools have different way of uh, ways of looking at it, and I do think, um, you know, more so than rising utility prices, rising um, cost of of coaching and others and the other people, we were additional people that are involved in the athletic department are making a uh, athletics much more expensive and I'd just like you to address that your thoughts on it
3: well I think it's an excellent point and I think all of us uh, are challenged with this particular topic um, uh, salaries not just coaching salaries but salaries across the board uh, certainly have risen at, at a very high rate um, we have a couple of forces that are on on the intercollegiate athletic program that uh, I think just make it a very market-based uh, driven uh, decisions. Uh, in the revenue sports, we have the professional leagues that uh, certainly uh, are continuing to take people away from uh, our campuses and uh, we're trying to compete to try to hold on to those people and to keep, keep them uh, I- involved. Um, the last time the NCA, we went through uh, an effort to try to put a, uh, a lid on uh, compensation uh, was not successful and faced a major lawsuit that uh, was not successfully defended and um, so I, I just think it's an area right now that uh, it's very difficult to get your arms around and, and yet it's still one that uh, it really does stress the system uh, in a in a very strong way so I really don't have a great answer for you there other than I think you're exactly right that it's it's uh, one that we're all struggling with but yet one that if you're going to be in the game, you've got to play. Do, you, you got to you got to respond to the market. Do you, do you
5: think there's ever a backlash in terms of of college sports? In terms of things like this, do you think it ever comes back to haunt the institution, or do people support it?
3: Well, uh, I think certainly it uh, it does have uh, raises its concerns across the the publics that we serve. Um, to date, they've been able to respond and have had shown the interest to fund uh, through private support um, and donations and preferred seat licensing and, and some of those new revenues. Uh, they've been able to uh, support it, but the question is, is how much longer is that going to happen? And and certainly could those resources be better used, but at the end of the day, as I said, you still have to uh, compete in the marketplace uh, for personnel, no differently than the academic side re- competes for, you know, the business professors are getting paid more than uh, people in the liberal arts, and uh, you know, there's there's just those differences, and uh, we're, in, we're in that uh, zone right now.
1: Hotting
6: right. uh, and then Britt. This is the night foundation commission on intercollegiate athletics and I don't want to get far off of it but uh, you both raised something which was to me exhilarating and then depressing (laughs) exhilarating and you spoke of 20,000 students who are doing intramurals or club and 22,000 or so who are in one form of uh, fitness program or another Uh, my question and then an assertion my question is Uh, Generally speaking, in uh, major American universities, is that percentage of uh, the undergraduate body given that kind of opportunity to do what everybody claims sports is so valuable for doing, which is to give them an experience outside the classroom and bonding and what have you? Are you pretty out of line with the majority of universities when it comes to intramurals?
3: Well, I, I would say we're pretty much in the mainstream, and certainly we have some presidents around the, the, the table here. Uh, our student bodies want to be active; they they yeah, right. they, they they do. And so, um, I think at all levels, Division One, Two, II, and Three, many schools have invested in their these areas from a recruitment tool because that's what students want. And uh, so, I think it's it's pretty mainstream, and uh, uh, I just. I think the question coming before us is not only how do we fund the varsity athletic programs but how do we fund these other opportunities right now student fees and student activity fees have been a large component of that but certainly as tuition grows and tuition and and student fees grow room and board it, it becomes a real challenge for our students to to be able to fund it
6: and so just to follow up then you you're suggesting strongly that this what you suggest is across the board commonplace of intramural and club sports is going to be as stressed, if not more, than big-time athletics.
3: I believe it will be. I don't think it will be as visible, obviously. Uh, certainly when, when varsity sports are dropped, uh, everybody hears about it. But uh, I think you'll see on campuses it will be stressed as well across the board.
6: Right.
0: Uh, you, you touched, both of you touched on the uh, salary, the compensation of, of uh, coaches and the escalating impact that that's having on, on uh, the financing of intercollegiate athletics and, of course, uh, the concern about how do you control salaries in a, uh, given all the federal r- rules and regulations on <laughs> restra- restraint of trade. But aren't there areas where we have sort of shot ourselves in the foot? Uh, through our contracts where we could come to some better understanding collectively. For example, I mean, we have these provisions in contracts where coaches have to pay back if they leave early. So what happens is now that we, a, t- a school will fire a coach, so they have to buy out that coach's contract. Then they have to go to the institution they want to hire the coach from and pay the penalty that that coach would have to pay. So we are, we're just building some incredible uh, uh, overhead into just the normal recruitment of, of a, coach, a coach, and we've done that to ourselves. I mean, what seemed like uh, locally a good practice to keep your coach has now become a significant inflationary faculty, factor in just hiring a coach.
2: Let me maybe uh, touch on that quickly, because I think what's underlying it is... Um, reflects just sort of the language uh, that's been used here which is the pressure that Tim and other people face and one of the pressures the expectations is that you're going to compete by external constituencies that Tim and others face is that you're going to compete with professional leagues for these coaches right and Andrew Zimbala's work uh, sort of shows the folly of that uh, the the ex, there's no reason based on the revenue base of, of intercollegiate athletics that they should be able to compete with professional sports they just bring in a lot more money and they have much more money to work with and then also, uh, which I think someone um, brought up the issue of whether it has to be more than one coach that you can hire. And I was struck at the University of Arizona, they just replaced uh, Lou Dolson um, with Sean Miller, and I was just struck by the, the use of the words and the language They just kept talking about winning the press conference, right? It's, it's maybe not that hard to find a, a coach who can win. There's a lot of coaches who can win, but if the criteria that's being placed on athletic directors is you need to win the press conference, there's not that many coaches that can win a press conference. You have to have someone who's already established success at a visible program, there's not many of those. And so when you have all of those those extreme pressures that exist, and then you come up with these, uh, what I view it as this is a great place for unforeseen, uh, any policy that you put into place could have unforeseen consequences because it can play out in all these very different ways. And so any these sort of reform in- agendas, I don't think anyone thought that the next institution is going to be having to cover the cost of the first institution, because I think that's a great insight. That's escalated costs even further. You could think it would decrease costs, could make coaches less likely to leave, and it just puts forth the challenge, uh, how hard a challenge this is to think about how we're straining this. Uh, Chuck, I think you were next, and
7: then. And um, uh, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in the fact that we're talking about uh, f- fiscal control and it seems to me that fiscal control in intercollegiate athletics, in the years I've been involved with it or watching it very carefully, means increasing income. Uh, I only remember one action uh, at an NCAA convention in which there was an attempt to reduce costs, and as I recall, the cost reduction was that the, you can't have uh, club jackets for for players for teams. Uh, 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 other than the attempt to try to control salaries, which hasn't worked, seems to me the only cost-cutting that can be done because you've got to you've got the the level playing field issue always in front of you. Is the to uh, stop the to to reduce the number of sports that you're sponsoring, and that's that's what happens. Now, I, I I haven't seen any any thing in between raising prices and cutting the number of uh, sports that you sponsor. What what other what other efforts uh of a collective kind have been made
3: well i think you're exactly right that uh your observation is is not far off uh the uh, the fact of the matter is the NCA we i think have been through three uh, efforts at controlling costs some positives um, some very frustrating moments to to get there uh, I do believe, though, moving forward, that as sports sponsorship uh, starts to be reduced to, to the levels that, that we may be looking at, that it will require uh, the membership to really step up and to uh, uh, really aggressively attack this so that we can preserve uh, the, the opportunities for both men and women that are out there, and uh, it might take that, that type of uh situation in order for us to get the attention of
1: everybody. Uh, Andrew and then Mike.
8: <laughs> yeah, I, I just wanted to uh, make a suggestion in, in response to Britt's good question and, and then ask a question. It seems to me that the reason why you, you get the phenomenon that Britt was describing whereby you have golden handshakes or handsome uh, severance pages, uh, p- payments and, and you have a duplicate. Uh, golf club memberships and free use of cars and a whole slew of other perquisites, is that at a certain point it becomes much too embarrassing to simply say we're going to give this coach five million dollars instead of four million dollars, and so you find all these backroom ways to make the payment, which is required by the by the competitive environment that that you exist in. Um, so I, I don't think it's it's simply a matter of saying. there's an an aspect of this that we can, if we were more rational, we we could excise, we could do away with it, because that's part of the competitive market. It's it's the perquisites and the salary and the severance payments and everything and the seniority bonuses and everything else. Uh, But I think also that the the comparison to, if we're talking about basketball, to the NBA or, or to, to the NFL levels of salaries and arguing that the, the coaches markets are congruent or overlapping is, is probably correct. And, and as John pointed out, it doesn't make any sense economically when you're looking at the top 30 or so uh, Division I basketball programs generating revenue between 10 and 15 million dollars, and the NBA teams on average generating 140 million dollars, or somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 times as much, that the, 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 the NCAA program is expected to meet the competitive level. Of, of the NBA program, and even when somebody like Calipari and many other coaches have tried their hand at the NBA and they're clearly not successful. Um, but I, I think what, what's required as, uh, from an economic analytic point of view is to ask the question, what would happen if an artificial constraint were placed upon salaries of head coaches in, in Division I? the main reason why we like to live by the rules of the marketplace is the marketplace allocates resources in the best in the most efficient way but if we had an artificial constraint on salaries i would argue that it wouldn't reallocate resources in any way whatsoever Uh, we'd still have the same talent of coaching in division one that we currently have Uh, and if uh, you know there's there's a total amount and and a head, foot coach, head football coach's talent that we have 119 in Division 1A or FBS and we have 32 in the NFL and so altogether you have about 150, those 150 coaches will still be there and the best alternative for them will still be either coaching in the NFL or coaching in Division I. Their alternatives will be coaching football in high school or coaching football somewhere else or maybe a few of them will be media commentators. But it won't affect the quality of coaching if we had such a constraint. So I'd like to ask you, Tim, uh, about your personal view and what you think other ADs how they would react to, given the difficulty of the NCAA setting constraints around coaches' salaries, given what happened with the fourth basketball coach several years ago, um, would you and do you think other ADs would be supportive of an effort to go to Congress to get an antitrust exemption to control these salaries?
3: Well, certainly I believe my colleagues are, are very interested in this this topic and uh, would certainly uh, want to have further discussion ab- about it. Uh, this, this area of salaries is, is very complex, as you as you certainly know, and some of the things that you pointed out. Um, you know, I just don't know that, that uh, going to Congress for uh, that exemption is the appropriate thing to do. I think that would take a lot more discussion. I'm not sure of all of the ramifications of that. Uh, you know the bottom line is uh, we're in a competitive marketplace no different than the universities in a competitive marketplace for presidents provosts deans uh, other people on campus uh, it, it's it's a competitive marketplace I am amazed many times when I see some of the packages that are put together to attract top professors uh, they they're on the same same kind of uh, packaging that intercollegiate athletics has done, Uh, and yet we don't talk a lot about that as well. And I know we're not here today to talk about the other side of the university, uh, and I'm not certainly being critical of that, but the fact of the matter is salaries is is just a very complex area that, uh, you know, if it's appropriate to get an exemption, uh, yes, I think that they would be. But I'm sure there's other ramifications of that that I certainly am not aware of, and I'm not sure my colleagues at this point are either. Okay,
1: Mike and Bill, and then we'll need to wrap up. Okay. The
9: last two questions. Um, I, I, I think Chuck, you're you're generally right about the fact that historically, uh, we have found it easier to enhance revenue than than to make cuts. But you know, even even in the last couple years, the the notion that we're not making some effort on cuts, I guess I would, I would argue with. Just to throw out five or six, I mean, there there have been several. Limitations on squad sizes and squad size salary. We've just uh, increased the concentric circles by which one has to bust the championships rather than uh, fly. We've looked at regionalization in some sports of the uh, championships or pushback in all of this. There's some conferences where men's and women's teams are now traveling together. Basketball, for instance, it would have been unthinkable if you years ago, in some people's mind, uh, some conferences have put specific limitations on numbers of sports that they'll all offer. We've done direct across-the-board cuts this year at the NCAA on operations. We've limited the numbers of coaches, and if I sat here and thought, the list would go on and on. Now, you could argue that some of these are at the margins, and and I think that's uh, uh, right, but but every. Every one of these moves and others that didn't pass, they all have constituencies. And uh, so it's, it's, uh, it, is, it has historically, seemingly, been easier to uh, enhance revenues than to, to cut costs. But I think there have been, and I know there need to continue to be uh, some good faith uh, uh, efforts. Uh, and if you read the first section of this book, Today, you see a lot of things that individual campuses and conferences are doing. Some of which is uh, stimulated by the um, recession that we're uh, living through. But there, there are whole industries right now that are that are doing well because of the recession. I took some shoes into a shoe shop to be half sold recently, and I've known this guy forever at the little college shoe shop, and he said, Dr. Adams, I've never been so overrun with business. I'm getting rich. Now, I don't think he really is, but (laughs) uh, he had piles of shoes where people are not throwing things away, and I I think there's some of that mentality uh, creeping in. I I hope it is, and, and I hope people will continue to send us suggestions because again i agree with you that generally our posture has been that we've enhanced revenues quickly enough to not have to do some tough things but we have made a number of uh, efforts and i think we'll make more okay bill
10: just uh, a a a comment and a, and a and a question for for both of you i, I appreciate your presentations and and i have to say that uh, i know a little bit about penn state's programs particularly the club sports intramurals and murals and and the demand is there, and as long as the demand is there, and the students are willing to to help support it, uh, I think the, the, there's going to be increases in those those kinds of things. And I'm sure it's true at other institutions. Um, the the topic of this, this discussion has to do with sports participation and sponsorship, and and like most other entities in the university, student affairs, or whatever it might be, uh, the budget process requires you to look at scenarios, and some of them involve increasing revenue, but also uh, a scenario that would suggest if there were reductions, what are the criteria would you use to make those reductions? And I, I would think that that would be the same thing in sports, uh, and, and perhaps both of you can answer this. Are there criteria that are being used or should be used to make that determination about which sports to offer? Uh, from an intercollegiate athletic standpoint, and, and what are and, and what's the source of those criteria?
3: Bill, I think that's a great observation. Uh, I know in discussions in the Big Ten and, and with my colleagues around the country, certainly uh, some of the basic criteria are, are looking first at uh, trying to minimize any impact on the student athlete experience and the welfare of our student athletes. Uh, so you know we have grown in a lot of areas that uh, maybe don't directly impact the student athletes with support areas that have, have mushroomed and, and grown um, and certainly some of our policies that we have relative to competition re- regionalization that president adams just spoke about travel uh... Um, methodologies that we could use uh, I, I think those are the criteria that would be first examined in terms of sponsorship though uh, i really believe that uh, it primarily is an institutional decision uh, there are many factors in addition to finances that go into sports sponsorship uh, we didn't spend much time here this morning on that but there's certainly other factors that go involved and i think that needs to be a local decision now some conferences have gotten together i think and and have had more broad discussions about sports sponsorship but i think at the end of the day that needs to be a local decision um, and manage that way but i think there are criteria that all of us have looked at that as we look at cost uh, restraints that uh, we're not going to impact on the central theme of uh, st- our student athlete experience
2: and to John, pick up on that you- real quick on you know there's this idea that's put forth about college costs that there's a revenue theory of costs what's the cost of any college well how much revenue can they bring in cuz they're going to spend everything that they can and you could view that that might be apply often to athletic programs as well and so What's going to be sort of interesting over the next five years or however long, however many years, is that revenues are going to go down and that's going to force some sort of cost control. And so we're going to be able to see somewhat what criteria are used. How do athletic programs practice cost control? And perhaps there may be some insights that uh, show up over the next few years.
1: Okay, thank you. Sonia, you haven't asked one this morning, so go ahead. We'll, <laughs> we'll extend, but if you can, make it brief.
4: Okay. Um, I wondered what the current forecasts are for the next round of television contract negotiations, based on the uh, economic conditions, particularly in the broadcast advertising markets? And do you think that's going to begin to mandate a kind of rethinking of the intercollegiate sports finance model? I have
3: no Yeah. Well, the question, if you couldn't hear it back there, would be, uh, in terms of the television contracts and future negotiations, and what's the future status, I guess, of those, and what impact that they might have? Uh, certainly they could have a, a very big impact and uh, you know we have a number of different television contracts that are out there both at the ncaa and at the conference levels um, and those are all at various stages uh... right now but uh... we've enjoyed tremendous growth in television revenue uh... through the past ten years i would say but uh... you know projecting out in the future i think it, we all have to be concerned about it certain certainly how it's packaged and uh... what the competitive marketplace might be at the time that you bid those packages is certainly gonna have a big impact on it as well and for any new players uh, one of the things that i think uh... all of us are, are not sure about is in the new media area uh... we've got changes just occurring so quickly in the in the television and media and internet area right now that trying to monetize all of that and trying to figure out how we can maximize both our exposure and also the revenue that's generated off of that is really a question that moving forward, and hopefully that might offset any kind of, uh, you know, uh, leveling off of television revenue.
1: All right, thank you very much for joining us and uh, making the presentation, and so uh, we appreciate you being with us very much. Thank you. We'll uh, take about a five-minute break and, uh, and then continue this conversation on, on intercollegiate finances.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. For more information on the Knight Commission, visit www.nightcommission.org.